1: Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show,
2: where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. Thanks everyone for joining us again here on the College Football Survivor Show. No Shahan Jeharaja this week. He's off. Doug Maurice, I'm here with another load of guests. And what we're gonna do this podcast, we're wrapping up spring football. It's so big it's gonna be two. So two weeks ago, we had four teams on here. And last week, I think we had four teams. This week, the plan is to do eight or nine teams. This podcast, we'll start off with Notre Dame. What happened in the Fighting Irish spring game? First-year head coach Marcus Freeman, Drew Pine, and Tyler Buckner, at quarterback. Lots of interesting stuff there. Then we get to Texas and Quinn Ewers, number one recruit in the country, transferring from Ohio State to Texas, what's he look like in year two of Steve Sarkisian? Could the Longhorns contend for the Big 12? Interesting talk. Then to a real, 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 real playoff contender, not that the others aren't, Utah. Looked really good to end last season after losing two of the first three. Really exciting Rose Bowl with Ohio State. Interesting opener against Florida, then a big midseason game against USC. Utah is a team worth watching with Cam rising back quarterback. Then we wrap it up with Oregon. New coach Dan Lanning. New quarterbacks and Bo Nix and Ty Thompson. How is that working out? Plus some other stuff happening. There's a civil lawsuit going on at Oregon that is not related to this football staff, but something that happened under a previous staff. We talk a little bit about that. Lots of stuff happening. And then part two should come right on the heels of part one wherever you subscribe to the college football survivor show yeah you gotta get if you're listening to this you gotta be subscribed right these free shows they're everywhere we have the paid apple podcast show each week that apple podcast show this week we're doing Mount Rushmores there of the four best players at different positions in the eight year history of the playoff this year it's really difficult but sometimes difficult stuff is fun it's defensive backs the four best defensive backs in the eight-year history of the playoff. That's going to come later in the week because we have this big two-part gigantic spring football wrap-up. This will be our last one because spring football is over. So part one, Notre Dame, Texas, Utah, Oregon. Part two will include, among others, USC, Oklahoma, Penn State, a couple other Big 12 teams. But right now, let's get to part one talking Notre Dame fighting Irish here on the college football survivor show great friend eric hansen the dean of notre dame sports writers knows the fighting irish as well as anybody doing it now at insidendsports.com. it's inside ndsports.com that's where you need to be reading about the fighting irish eric thanks for joining us here on the college football survivor show
1: thanks for having me on
2: Who's the quarterback, man? No, it's not quite that easy. But I know – so spring game, Drew Pine played, maybe not great, right, on Saturday. Tyler Buckner, ankle injury, did not play. So there's the spring game. There's what you learned and saw and heard spring practice. What's your handle on the quarterback situation for the Fighting Irish right now?
1: Well, I think despite how Drew Pine played, he improved a lot this spring over what he was last year. And so did Tyler Buckner. But I've felt all along, this is Tyler Buckner's job. You know, this is the guy that Tommy Reese went after a couple of years ago and turned down some quarterbacks that actually had some interest in Notre Dame that were higher rated than Tyler. Uh, so I believe Tyler Buckner will be starting uh, in the shotgun at Ohio Stadium on September 3rd.
2: So Jack Cohn in last year as a transfer to sort of steady things had been a starting quarterback at Wisconsin. If that's the case, is the quarterback play at Notre Dame going to be better in 2022 or not as good as it was last year if if you're getting a pretty good handle on Buckner and the, the
1: guy he can be? Well, I'll tell you what. Jack um, was better than I thought he was going to be for Notre Dame, especially after the first few games. Their offensive line improved a lot, and their offensive line is going to be really good this year. Harry, he stands back coaching it. And that's going to make a difference with the quarterback play, including Buckner. Um, you know, the reason it was such a risk to play Buckner last year was he had no senior year of football. Mm. He, he missed it because of the pandemic. California punted to the spring, and he was an early enrollee. So he had one year of high school football. I think it's going to be better. Buckner brings a running dimension. He can make all the throws. Jack is a more savvy quarterback. But Tyler's pretty smart, and as he gains experience, he's kind of turning into the quarterback that scored between running and throwing 87 touchdowns as a junior in high school.
2: We know Marcus Freeman took over last year for Brian Kelly, coached the bowl game. Tommy Reese, how big of a deal was it for Marcus Freeman to retain him as the guy running the offense for the Fighting Irish?
1: I think longer term... It it meant a lot. I think they would have lost a lot of lot more recruits than they Mm. did. They lost a couple in the eleventh hour, Uh, but Tommy Reese is really coming into his own. Notre Dame didn't have to install a new offense, teach everybody new terminology, so there was a lot of continuity with an offense that needed continuity. So I'd say, other than the strength and conditioning coach Matt Bayless, I, I think Tommy Reese was right up there in terms of uh retaining uh a very needed piece to the program.
2: So where where
1: is it that Notre Dame will
2: be will see the most significant improvement this season compared to last? You mentioned the offensive line. Is is that where it is or where, where else could they really be a much much better team?
1: I think where you'll see them most improved is the offensive line. They've got incredible talent. They they had two true freshmen who started games for them last year on the offensive line. They'll be their starting tackles, and those guys are special. I mean, they're future high-round draft picks at tackle. They have probably the best center in the country coming back in Jarrett Patterson. And Harry Heastan makes an incredible difference. Um, you can see all the guys that he's put into the pros, and they come back and they help at practice. I think the front seven is going to be better for Notre Dame. I think they're going to be a better run defense. Okay. Uh, Al Golden is the new defensive coordinator. Jim Laurinaitis is helping out with the linebackers. He's a grad assistant. Um, Al Washington is the defensive line coach, which I know Ohio State fans, I don't think we're really sad to see him go, but I think he's much stronger as a D line coach than he would be a linebackers coach. You know, Marcus Freeman's influence is still there. So in the trenches where Notre Dame has to get better is cornerbacks and wide receivers. That's going to be kind of the question mark going into August. Okay.
2: So the place where they could take the biggest step back, I mean, it's, is that where you, I mean, they're losing maybe the best safety in the country in, in Kyle Hamilton receivers and secondary. That's where they maybe are at a risk to take a step
1: back. Yeah, but I'll, I'll tell you this, the safety surprised me in the spring. They, um, they have some good young ones and then they got a transfer from Northwestern, Brandon Joseph, who Ooh, was an all-American he's good. couple. Yeah. He's really good. A couple of years ago. So they plug him into where Kyle Hamilton was. And they were the position group that surprised me the most in the spring in a good way. Okay.
2: So how much different is the Marcus Freeman era compared to the Brian Kelly era? Brian Kelly certainly established sort of a new level of winning at Notre Dame, a tremendous success there, uh twice in the playoff. But I just think Marcus has it. I'm not alone in that, but he's also very young and he's never been a head coach before. Does everything feel really different, Eric, or is it maybe that Marcus, it's a little just more of a continuation of what Brian Kelly did well?
1: Well, there were a couple of things that he stuck with that Brian Kelly did do well. And one of, one of them, they have these SWAT teams in the winter and the spring that, that foster accountability and leadership and competitiveness That was in place, but Marcus went and lifted with the team in early morning winter workouts. He was there sweating with the guys uh, in the mornings, which was kind of interesting. I'd say the biggest difference is just Marcus is fearless in recruiting. Mm. Um, A lot of people were kind of saying, well, you know, LSU and Notre Dame, they don't knock heads in recruiting. Almost every recruit. That, that is on the top of Notre Dame's list has an LSU offer and vice versa. So he's not shopping down the same mile Brian Kelly was. He's going after kids uh, that may not think Notre Dame's a fit for them uh, culturally and trying to convince them that it is. And recruiting is at the f- forefront of everything Marcus Freeman does. And I think – It's interesting. They're going to be a more talented team in the years to come. And Marcus is going to make some coaching mistakes, but I think that talent is going to mitigate those mistakes early on. And I'll tell you what, the guy is incredible in terms of being self-aware of what he doesn't know and how to go Hmm. and get those answers.
2: Interesting. Marcus was a really smart player when he was at Ohio State. I remember doing a story on him back in the day where, he thought he might go more on the athletic director track. Like he has that kind of sort of big picture thinking. So to hear that, that doesn't surprise me that he's a football guy three and through and through, but he's, I think a big picture thinker, kind of a, he thinks like a CEO. So that, that, that I, that's a very interesting analysis by you. That's a big thing. You got to know what you don't know.
1: Yeah. And he, he um, it's interesting because people say, you know, how was he kind of check checking off the boxes of a first year coach? I think he has conquered the harder things. Now the, what do I do on game day? Where am I? Which meetings am I in during the week? I think those are the things he still has to iron out. But like one great idea he had this past weekend, Notre Dame invited former players back for the blue gold game. And, and there were a ton of recruits there and, and they noticed. And typically they get 20 come back. They had 300. Ooh. And, you know, big time guys like Aaron Taylor and Rocket Ismail and not so big time guys. And it was amazing because the alumni feel like, you know, when they're sitting there talking to recruits, Aaron Taylor's telling uh, some of the top recruits, O-line recruits, why they should play for Harry stand. And it changed some trajectory of recruiting. So just great ideas like that. Interesting. This is
2: Eric Hansen of inside that's where you guys should be reading your notre dame coverage we we do have to make sure everybody has an appreciation eric and i know you do being there and having covered this what brian kelly got done at notre dame his last five years at notre dame 10 and 3 12 and 1 11 and 2 10 and 2 11 and 2 final finishes in the ap poll 11 5 12 5 and 8 they are absolutely right there every year this year Will Notre Dame Notre Dame be in the playoff mix era? Can they be, a, again, it's only four spots. We get that. But will there be a situation where in November when the playoff rankings are coming out, Notre Dame fans are watching, saying, hey, okay, where are we? You know, we only have a loss. We're, we're in the mix here. Is that possible for this team in year one of Marcus Freeman?
1: I think if Ohio State is a playoff team, Notre Dame has a chance to be a playoff team. I don't think they're going to win. Notre Dame is going to win that opener. So they're going to have to impress in the next eleven games, and they have chances to do that. They have a they finish out at USC with Lincoln Riley's new team. They have Clemson at home in November, and so there's going to be the kind of octane on their schedule. If they're an improved team in November, they're going to be in the mix. I think they have a chance. I'm not predicting they will be in the playoff, but I think this team is certainly better. Then the one that finished number five in the standings last year, you know, in the college football playoff rankings, number five, one spot out of the playoff. This yep. is a better roster. Really interesting. OK,
2: I got to tell you what that the game I really like, October 8th, Notre Dame, BYU. I'm, I'm <laughs> all about BYU this year. That could be a really fun. And here it is. It's like Notre Dame's the testing ground again. For the hey, if you want to be a little, a little bit of an underdog team that needs to burnish its resume and go undefeated and prove people how good you are, Cincinnati did it a year ago. I think BYU could be in a very similar spot this year, Eric. And Notre Dame's to be like, okay, great. BYU, you're a great team, but but no, we're better than that this year. That like that could be a good game.
1: I think it will be, and it's gonna be in Vegas, which is kind of funny and interesting.
2: Yeah. Catholics and Mormons in Vegas hanging out watching football. <laughs> That's good stuff. Uh, But Eric Hansen, look for Eric Hansen at a slot machine in Vegas. The second (laughs) Saturday in October, you go up, say, hey, I read Inside ND Sports. And Eric will say, sit down right here next to me on the Penny Slots, man. Let's have a good time. Eric, you're the best. You know Notre Dame as well as anybody. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day to join us here on the College Football Survivor Show.
1: Anytime. Really enjoyed it.
0: Don't miss the College Football Survivor Show bonus episode this week. Available only on Apple Podcasts. The five for DBs to, for Georgia, yeah. four of
2: them played every snap, and yeah. William Poole played all but two. So basically their five DBs played yeah. the whole game. Louis Seen had the lowest grade. Yeah. But he won the MVP. He won the MVP given yeah. by sports writers who are furiously trying to finish their game stories. And the people from the playoff are like, hey, do you have your vote? And they're like, ah, ah I, I, it's Louis Seen." <laughs> That's how it works, unfortunately.
3: I, I would wonder what percent of the uh, defensive MVP votes were cast before
2: oh. the final interception. Most of oh. those, probably. They're, like, asking you for your ballot with, like,
3: 10 minutes left in the game. And you're just like, I don't know. There's a game left to happen. <laughs> you know, so sometimes there's context. That doesn't get captured because they need to do the
2: logistics. What a logistic. And Is so I think we've had this conversation. Is there somebody in the back counting up the ballots? Send you up, yeah, I mean I, a digital I, poll. Yes. Click <laughs> on your MVP. Just send us a Twitter poll just well, uh, <laughs> that's more <laughs> legitimate. At least you don't have to do with ten minutes left in the game. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for exclusive college survivor show
0: bonus episodes.
2: Time to talk a little Texas football here on the College Football Survivor Show. To do that, we have Danny Davis, Austin American statesman. Danny, how long have you been covering the Longhorns?
3: I guess this is going to be my seventh season. My first my first game ever with the Longhorns was that Notre Dame overtime game. And Ooh. I thought, well, I'm walking into the greatest situation in the world. It's nothing but up from here. And that, is, that has not been the case. Although that uh, 2018 trip to the Sugar Bowl was a lot of fun.
2: There we go. Well, Danny, more longevity than the Texas coaches as of late. So Danny is hanging in there. Uh, But it's getting interesting, man. It is getting interesting at Texas. And we start off all these conversations with quarterback, which means we get to talk Quinn Ewers right off the bat. Danny, will he win the Heisman this year? Just kidding. That's not actually the question. But I know he threw like an 80-yard touchdown pass in the spring game and people were going bazonkers, right? How did he look? Quinn Ewers, five-star recruit, transferred back from Ohio State. How did he look? For the throngs on Saturday.
3: He looked like a quarterback competing in a spring game. I mean, oh,
2: no, no. Where? Oh, look at you being a professional journalist and tamping it down. I mean, so it, some, it is, some good, it some is,
3: bad, huh? It is what it is. I mean, you know, Quinn had, I mean, that long touchdown pass, whatever it was, I mean, they didn't keep official stats. So there was some conflicting. Was it X, I had one yard <laughs> more? Was it, you know, what? It was the, so far in the air, but what it was a long touchdown pass and it was gorgeous. But, you know, that was one throw. Um, Quinnette sometimes, you know, was overcooking some passes. I think he started off one for five, but he was also playing behind their second-string offensive line, and that was – he wasn't getting a lot of time to throw, Um, playing with some backup receivers at some point, playing with some starters, and he looked good. So, I mean, you know, he had some brilliant moments. He had some, you know, moments where he looked like a quarterback who hadn't played a meaningful snap since 2020. I mean, you can say the same thing for Hudson Card. Hudson had some nice – passes. And he also has some passes that I'm sure when he looked at the film on Saturday night, Sunday, Sunday morning, he wishes he had back. So, you know, there's, there's a highlight that came out of that spring game. There was something to get a lot of Texas fans excited, but as a whole, um, I don't think we could um, put, put uh, Quinn as the number one pick in the NFL draft in a couple of years, just based off the, based off that spring game. But there, you know, that one pass gave a lot of people some reason for optimism. So I guess, that was a good thing that came out of that game.
2: Is he the number one pick for who probably will be Texas's starting quarterback this fall, or how is that competition shaking out with Hudson card?
3: I would assume that Quinn is going to be the starter. I think most people made that assumption once he decided to transfer last December, just based off who he was and, you know, the struggles that Hudson had had as a freshman, but you know, Hudson card is not given this job to Quinn Ewers. I mean, he had a pretty decent spring. I think it says something that Steve, Sarkeesian didn't just, you know, name Quinn the starter at any point during the spring. Even when we asked him in the post-game press conference on Saturday, Saturday night after the spring game, you know, he said that this competition is still going to go into the go into the the summer and may not be settled until August. But I think most of us, when they play Louisiana Monroe, I think it's September 3rd, um, expect number three to be the guy that goes out there. But you know, Hudson's gonna make him work for it. And you know, at worst, Hudson Card is a experienced, good um number two quarterback who's gonna press, you know, throughout the throughout the fall for that job.
2: Did you guys talk to Quinn this spring at all?
3: We got Quinn once. We got both quarterbacks, um, I think it was about two weeks ago. Um okay. we got both quarterbacks back to back um for Hudson talks for longer because Hudson knows us a little bit more. Quinn was a little bit more reserved, probably talked for about 10 minutes, but that was the the one time we got to talk to him.
2: What's What do you think it's like for a guy like that? Number one recruit in the country, reclassified, comes to Ohio State for a year. I said it's like he transferred to Columbus High School for a year and got a million bucks in NIL money. He was never really fully integrated, I don't think, into the Ohio State program. Winds up back at Texas, which is his dream school, which is probably where he should be. But this is a lot, right? This is a lot. Is it tough for him or do you think this is just like, you know what? Everybody loves him. It's he's Everybody's excited. It's the Sark era. It's going to be great.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'd imagine it, it'd be tough for anybody. But, you know, the good, the thing about Quinn is Quinn has been dealing with this for a while. I mean, he yep. was the, you know, poster boy when he was at South Lake Carroll. And, you know, he was the guy that had 10 different, you know, meet, recruiting reporters on the sideline for all of his games. So, I mean, it's not like this attention has been a shock, even though he didn't play um, last year when he went to Ohio State. You know, once he reclassified and made that uh, decommitted committed, reclassified, went up to Columbus. I mean, all eyes were on him. I mean, whether it was because of who he was, the NIL stuff, all that stuff. So, I mean, he's had this spotlight on himself for the last three years. I'm not concerned about that, you know, being too much pressure. He seems to have kind of integrated himself in this campus pretty well um, since he got here. You know, the women's basketball team was really struggling to get some um fan support um, this winter. And he was one of the football players who's out there. Hey, come out, come out to the games, you know, come support these Longhorns, you know, kind of just trying to make himself part of this community and this athletic department. So I don't have a concern about that. Um, We'll see what happens, you know, once if he is the actual starting quarterback, that's a different kind of pressure. That's a different kind of attention. I mean, right now, no one's saying anything bad about Quinn Ewers. It's all roses and, you know, you know, ticker tape parades and stuff like that. But even, you know, if he gets this job, even if he has a great, freshman year there's going to be struggles at times so we'll see how he handles that part but you know for the most part i'm not concerned about it because he's been dealing with this for for a while and i'm sure he's a lot more concerned about an oklahoma linebacker blitzing yeah. him than us reporters and you know ask ask asking some tough tough questions
2: i don't know man i i might rather take an oklahoma linebacker than danny davis coming at me i don't know
3: um, i have nothing but softballs over here. <laughs> don't, don't worry about me
2: Danny, five and seven for the Longhorns a year ago, including a six-game losing streak after a, a four and one start. Where will Texas be a better football team this year? It's going to be year two of Steve Sarkeesian. Where do you think they might take the biggest leap, either on the offense or defense? Is there a position group? Is there a guy? Where are they going to get better?
3: I mean, they better hope it's on the offensive line. and They better hope it's defensively. I mean, you know, Quinn Quinn is going to get a lot of talk this season. Uh, Bijan is going to get a lot of talk and hype. And that's deserved. I mean, they're both, you know, marquee talents, but it doesn't matter. I mean, Bijan had a great season last year. Um, you know, Casey Thompson said what you about him, but he had a, he threw for six touchdowns in the game that Texas lost. He threw for five touchdowns in the game that Texas lost. So I don't think, court, even though quarterback play wasn't spectacular and no one's putting the Casey Thompson's name, you know, up on the, you know, whatever they call the rafters or whatever, where they retired all the numbers for Vince and Colton and stuff like that. That's not happening for Casey. But at the same time, you know, he wasn't the biggest problem on this team. I mean, they, you know, struggled defensively. That defense has to get better um, in the second year with PK. And then you know, offensively, you would hope that offensive line figures out some of its problems. You, um, if you're a Texas fan, you'd hope that some of these recruits that they're bringing in um, in this 2022 class can compete for playing time and that that line gets better to prote- protect for Bijan, protect for whoever the quarterback is, and you just hope that they can make that next step. And you're optimistic that, you know, Hey, this is year two of the Sark area, year two of the Herman area. They made a huge leap and did that, that went to the the sugar bowl. So maybe another year in the system, things will get better and it's not the five and seven disaster that last season was
2: 1127 yards for Bijan Robinson last year peaked with 35 carries for 216 yards against TCU. And then, but down the stretch, his last three games didn't have a hundred yards in any of them. I think this guy's ceiling, right? This guy at his best is as good as any running back in the country, I think. How much more do you think is out there for Bijan Robinson? And what is the key for him to being for him to be at you know, obviously the offensive line is gonna help a lot. What's the key for being at his best for a twelve game season?
3: I mean, I think Bijan would um You know, he'd probably be able to tell you this himself. You know, he's going to go as far as the rest of his team goes. Um, I think everyone after that TCU game, you know, figured that number five was the person we needed, they needed to be focused on, on on the scouting report. You know, he, you know, the media knew it, the opposing teams knew it. And, you know, he, you know, as you mentioned, his stats weren't as great down the, you know, down the stretch. But when the entire team is focusing on you, that tends to happen. When your offensive line isn't able to block as well as you hope, that's going to happen. So, you know, if this offensive line gets better, this, um, you know, the passing game um, is able to make some steps, whether it's Quinn or Hudson back there, that's going to open up more holes for, for Bijan. And, you know, hopefully he's fully healthy after um, having to miss the last couple of games of the season with his elbow issue last year. And, you know, he can make the next step, but yeah, you know, I think most people expect this to be his last season in Austin. I think most mm-hmm. people expect uh, for, if we're talking next April about him, it's draft prep, not a, uh, not 2013, season prep, So, um, I, I don't think he's an issue. I think most people expect another good season, um, for him. And I think that's like one of the few guarantees you can, you know, mark down about this, uh, about this Texas team, that if, you know, Bijan Robinson's healthy this next season, he's going to be just, just fine. And that's uh, something that Texas fans are very excited about and should be excited about. Um, and you know, I think most people, media members, fans, We love the kid. He's a great, great talker, energetic personality, nice kid, even though I don't know if I should be calling a 20 year old a kid, but you know what I'm saying? Like he's a great, great guy. And, you know, he's just as good on the football field as he is off of it.
2: All right. Is there any spot where Texas might take a step back this year or after a five and seven year is everything trending up in year two of Sark?
3: If you're five and seven, you'd hope that there aren't many, you know, places you can go backwards. um, You know, You lose to Kansas. I think every, everything's a step in the right direction. I I do think um, they are going to take a a step back on special teams. Um, Cameron Dicker did everything for them last year, kicking and punting kickoffs, all that stuff. And he is hoping to be, you know, hearing his name in the NFL draft. And so that's um, an issue. We don't even know who the kicker is going to be next year. They have, um, A guy on campus, Bert Auburn, who um, was a walk-on last year, and they're bringing in a freshman. They signed Will Stone. So those two will have to compete for it. But, you know, for the last four years, Texas had the luxury of knowing um, kind of what they had in Cameron Dicker, and so they're going to have to figure that out um, this fall with two new guys. And then also, you know, Isaac Pearson seems to be the guy with the leg up pun intended i'm a i'm a dad that's my pun (laughs) that's my pun there with the with the punting game we
2: accept dad jokes here on the show that's great
1: yeah
3: and he he seemed to do pretty well during the spring and you know he's another australian kicker so um that that's at texas so we'll kind of see how those two um positions but you know that's the step back on this team but i would say the rest of the team um you you'd, you'd hope that they would be taking the step forward and that uh um, there's, there's no one that can really relax on their laurels on, on the, on that team after that season, or in their laurels, I guess is the term.
2: Dicker the kicker, man. I talked to that guy at the combine. I like that guy. That guy's, that guy's going to start for summer. You know, the Cowboys need a kicker. Maybe the Cowboys. Dick or the kicker will just move down the road. That'd be great. He'd be a
3: he's, a, he's a, local. So we, we've yeah, had a yeah. long run run with Cameron and it'll be, it'll be fun to see where he, the next uh, step of his, his career goes.
2: All right, so the Statesman coverage of the Longhorns who are going to be super interesting this year, you can find it at hook'em.com, H-O-O-K-E-M.com. The last question here, Danny, is there a chance Texas is in the playoff mix this year? I'm not saying make the playoff, but I'm saying, can they be in the mix to win a Big 12 championship? Can they be eight and one late in the year and getting votes in those initial college football playoff rankings, or does does that feel far-fetched? Because, you know, we got week two, we got Bama in week two. So that's, you're going to get, they're going to figure themselves, figure some stuff out about themselves right away. Can they be good? Can they be good?
3: I mean, sure. I mean, if everything pits, why, why not? I mean, you look at the big 12, um, it's Oklahoma's conference until someone says otherwise, but this Oklahoma team is going through a transition. So who knows exactly what's going to be going with them. Um, and then after Oklahoma, you have a bunch of teams. You have some talent across the conference, but I don't think you could tell me that this second best. You can guarantee that that second best team is going to be the second best team come December. So, if Texas can you know figure it out, unfortunately, that second game is against Alabama. That's a tough team to be figuring stuff out against. But if you can figure stuff out in that ULM game, that UTSA game, as you start to get ready for Big Twelve play and things start going well, this offense is clicking. Quinn Ewers is who everyone hopes Quinn Ewers is. Bijan Robinson is that. Heisman contender and that defense is at least passable. I mean, who you, maybe this Texas team can get hot. I'm not guaranteeing it. I don't know if, how many of your listeners are gamblers, but don't take my advice during your next trip to Vegas. Cause I don't want, I don't want to be held responsible for y'all losing your kids college funds. But you know, if this Texas team got hot, got to the big 12 championship game and won it wouldn't be the most shocking thing in the world. It's not a guarantee. Um, Texas is, Absolutely probably going to be overranked when the season starts, but yeah. you know, crazy things happen. No one thought Cincinnati was going to be in the playoffs this past year. And, you know, crazier, crazy. No one thought Baylor was going to have the season Baylor had last year, but you know, if a couple of things go right. Who, who knows with this team, but I'm not guaranteeing it. It seems like, you know, eight and four is kind of the number that's being tossed around. I think with the media around here, which I think is appropriate, but I tend to be a little bit more optimistic than, a lot of others. So, you know, nine and three, 10 and two, who it's, it's completely impossible, but yeah, who knows? I, I, I will just say, I feel safe saying Texas is going to start the season one and one. And then after okay. that, Alabama game, you know, the rest, the rest is up to them. We'll, we'll see.
2: That'd be fascinating. So you're upset by Louisiana Monroe in the opener and they come back and take care of Bam on week two and they're back to one and one. Yeah. That why why great... not? Well, let's,
3: let's, let's go with that. Why not?
2: Do you think, and, and we'll finish on this, Danny, most Texas fans, when they look at that week two game, Alabama coming to Austin, are they closer to awesome? Let's go. Let's test Quinn Ewers and Bijan Robinson and, and Xavier Worthy against Will Anderson. Let's take on the Heisman winner. It's Sark versus Saban. Are they more like that? Or are they more like, oh, no, please, Will Anderson, don't rip Quinn Ewers' arms off?
3: Um, I, I I don't know if probably somewhere in the middle. I don't know if people are freaking out and saying this is going to ruin our program and we're going to have a injury report. That's, you know, <laughs> 10 pages long afterwards. I don't know if people are quite that petrified, but I also think they respect Alabama, at least the good Texas fans. Yep. The ones that are knowledgeable respect Alabama and kind of know what this is going to, that the longhorns are in for a, you know, a steady climb, but you know, if you're a Texas fan, you know that they're going to the SEC in a couple of years, you know, Alabama's the King, and this is going to be a good measuring stick. Even if, you know, some of your players are young and inexperienced, I think that people are going to know kind of what they have with this team um, during that game. And, you know, even if they don't win that game, if they're competitive, you know, there's going to be some pretty optimistic fans that are going to leave DKR that night. And yeah, they get blown up by 40. You know, there's going to be some fans who at least got to see one good football team that (sighs) night. So yeah, I think it's a win-win situation for those, who, for those who have the season ticket package. But I think people are probably going to go into that game, um, you know, at least optimistic about what this team is and um, kind of the tra- trajectory of where yeah, right. um, this fall is going to be heading.
2: He's Danny Davis. Best Texas coverage you can find is done by the Statesman there in Austin. You can read it at hook'em.com. Danny, thanks so much for joining us here on the College Football Survivor Show.
3: Thanks for having me. We'll see you all in the fall.
2: Join now to talk some Utah football by Josh Newman of the Salt Lake Tribune. Been covering the Ute since 2019. Josh, thanks for joining us here on the College Football Survivor Show. Of course, Doug. How are you? I'm great. And listen, I don't know. I don't know if I didn't tell you this. I think Utah's good. Like you, does everyone know this by now? <laughs> we don't have to tell I mean, the world anymore that Utah is good. Do we? People you know? know?
0: I, I mean, I think people have a better idea after that. After that Rose Bowl game, um, look, Utah. Utah football has always kind of been this like David versus Goliath, right? The little engine that could, right? They were in the whack forever. They were in the Mountain West. They've been in the Pac-12 since 2011. The 21 season was their fourth division title, fourth Pac-12 South title since 2015. Uh, they finally broke through, won a Pac-12 championship game went to a Rose bowl. And yeah, I I think the country found out a little bit more about Utah now, just given the season they had um, and given the Rose bowl that, you know, that they just played
2: quarterback, a lot of places around the country. It's like, Ooh, what's the, what's the battle in the spring? Listen, man, Cam rising (laughs) like is the dude. And I know he only played one series in the spring game. Right. But he looked great. And what, what are the expectations now for a guy like that who, Took over last year was so
0: good, and it feels like there's even a lot more there, isn't there? There is a lot more. He has not reached his ceiling. The thing with Rising that maybe people outside this area don't realize is that it's been a tough road, okay? He gets here in 2019, a transfer from Texas. Uh, He is not eligible immediately in 2019, and even if he was, Tyler Huntley, who's now with the Baltimore Ravens, was entrenched as the starter. Uh, 2020 with the weird COVID year, Wins a quarterback competition against Jake Bentley, who was a South Carolina transfer, Uh, 14th offensive snap, Rising blows out his shoulder. So he's done. Uh, 2021, they bring in Charlie Brewer from Baylor. Rising loses that quarterback competition. Uh, It came back around to, as you said, uh, turn the season around. They win 9 of 10. They go to the Rose Bowl, etc. This is the first time in Rising's career where there is no quarterback competition, Mm. there is, there is no question. So this, this spring, summer, going into the fall, he's getting the first team reps. He's, you know, he's in the quarterback room, he's leading. This is his offense for the first time in his career. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated to see just where things go, right? He, he, he's already had command of the locker room. Okay. He's a captain. He and Andy Ludwig, the offensive coordinator, this is year four for them together. They already have that rapport. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious to see where this goes. He's already very good. He's already proven himself all packed 12 first team quarterback. But as you alluded to, Doug, I do think there is more, you know, that rising can give to this offense.
2: Really interesting. I mean, I, I you love when a guy, he's got natural talent. Again, he was a big time recruit at Texas, but when he's getting totally comfortable, I think your point about, he doesn't have another guy that he has to worry about. He's right. not looking over his shoulder at all. Um, This is one of the things I mean, that could be a separator for Utah in this playoff race this year, because there are a lot of places. Listen, there's Bryce Young and there's CJ Stroud at Alabama and Ohio State. And then I think, right, if we're talking who's who's next, who's established, who's talented, who's reliable, who's experienced, who's dynamic. I think Cam Risings right in the group at that next level of quarterback when you look at the
0: contenders around the country. That's interesting. That's an interesting point. You don't hear that a ton. You don't hear, you don't hear rising's name in, in, in that next tier. And I agree that it's Bryce young and it's CJ Stroud. And then you start talking about who's three, four, five. The thing with Utah is they ran the ball last season, 58% of the time. They, you know, they run the ball, the offensive line, no matter who graduates, who goes to the draft, they always have the offensive line figured out. Tavion Thomas last season, right? A Dayton kid emerges as this bell cow he goes for 1100 yards and 21 touchdowns in essentially like nine or 10 games he was having some struggles early but he figured it out so you know my point here is they they didn't ask a ton of rising last year because the offensive line and the running game was so good now you know rising at usc through for like 315 yards um but you know that was one of his biggest games but you know a lot of the time it was like you know 15 of 24 mm-hmm. for 175 and two touchdowns. He was taking care of the ball. I I hesitate to use the term game manager, which I hate because Rising is more than a game manager. He is a capable quarterback, but they just didn't ask him to do a ton because he didn't have to. We, you know, we saw in the Rose Bowl before he got hurt, he he was slinging it. He was he was going throw for throw with CJ Stroud there for a little while, so they haven't asked Rising to do a ton, but he has shown that he is capable of shouldering a load if he has to, but there just haven't been that many times where he's had to.
2: Again, Utah, as we know, 9-1 and one to end the regular season last year after losing, well, regular season and the, as, and the uh, Pac-12 championship game. Right After losing two of the first three, 48-45 goes down to the wire in the Rose Bowl against Ohio State. Where could Utah be even better this year? Where is there room for growth
0: with this team that was really good last year? Interesting. You know, they they ended the season with a real depth problem in the secondary, specifically yep. at cornerback. Uh
2: which Ohio State noted in the post uh, bowl.
0: <laughs> Ohio State <laughs> was watching film and they were ready to uh, to take advantage of that. There you know, there was a depth issue. Uh JT Brockton, who was an all-pack twelve kid, uh lost for the season uh so like September eleventh, like very early. Uh Fabian Marks, he goes down late in the season. Zamaya Vaughn breaks his ankle in the Pac-12 championship game. The defensive coaching staff was so down on the depth that they had Makai Bernard, who is a very good running back, very good athlete. They moved him to cornerback and they had him play cornerback in the Rose Bowl. We know how that worked out. That is one of the question marks here going into the, well, we're past spring now, but going into the summer, going into the fall, what is the depth the depth situation look like? Uh, Fabian Marks is still hurt. Zamaya Vaughn is still hurt. Look, JT Brockton is back. He's a proven commodity. Clark Phillips, he's, he's back. All pack 12 kid. You like what you have? One, two, three. The question is four, five, six at cornerback. What does your depth look like? Um, and then, you know, where can you improve the linebacker situation? It's kind of another fascinating situation. Uh, you know, Devin Lloyd is going to be a first round draft pick here on Thursday night. Uh, Nephi Sewell also going to the NFL draft. So what does your linebacker situation look like? Um, that's another, you know, deep, talented position room, but the options there while talented are very green. You just don't have guys that you you just don't have the game reps because Devin Lloyd started 45 games and and Nephi Sewell started, you know, whatever it was, 15, 18 games. So linebacker, cornerback, those are the two positions exiting spring ball that are on my mind losing Devin Lloyd who what is arguably the best defensive player in Utah football history. Is that, is that the biggest thing where it's like they
2: got to figure something out there? He was so impactful. We know they used him as an edge rusher on third down.
0: Sometimes he was, he's a game changer. Yeah. I mean, you look at all positions and who's left and who's back and yeah, that linebacker position just because yes, he was a great player, but he just looked sideline to sideline doing everything. As you said, coming off the edge on third down, you know, four interceptions, freak athlete, you don't replace a guy like that. You can figure it out. You have the talent, but you, you just don't replace a guy like that. And you certainly don't replace a guy like that during the spring. You're trying to figure it out. And even early into the fall, you're probably not going to have that figured out until, you know, you're several games into the season, just because you have a few options.
2: So it's a little bit, not a weird year for Utah, but you lose to your first three and you, you kind of fall off the radar a little bit. And then you change quarterback, and here you come, here you come, here you come, here you come. And by the end of the season, you're one of the 10 best teams in the country. Could Utah be right in the playoff mix this year? Not saying they're going to be in the top four yeah. for sure, but will they be? They have this really interesting opener at Florida. Is Did Urban Meyer broker that game? Why is Utah <laughs> playing Florida? Is Urban going to do the coin, the coin toss, or how is that going to work?
0: Yeah. So the situation there is Utah's athletic director, Mark Harlan comes in here in 20. Hope I get this right. I believe 2018 Mark Harlan comes in and almost immediately he, he sets out to beef up Mm. the the football schedule. You know, Utah under Kyle Whittingham forever has been pretty happy to play, you know, Weber state Southern Utah. You're going to play BYU pretty much every year. Maybe you schedule a power five early, but, Utah has been pretty happy just to kind of play the FCS and keep it mellow for the first three weeks. But here comes Harlan, wants to beef up the schedule. You know, Baylor, Arkansas, LSU at the end of the decade, Wisconsin into the next decade. So he wants to play Florida. So he goes to Tom Holmo, the AD at BYU. You know, hey, can we take the Utah BYU games that are scheduled in 22 and 23? Move them to the end of the decade, end of the contract, because we want to play Florida. And BYU says, yes, no problem. So it just turns out that this Utah-Florida game, which was scheduled, obviously, again, three or four years ago, this is now the biggest opener in the history of Utah football. Wow. Because if you win this Florida game, you are automatically a viable college football playoff contender. If you win, you have the juice. You are ranked in the top 10. Everything is in front of you if you beat Florida. Now, if you lose to Florida and hypothetically you run the table, you can get to the college football playoff still, but your road is much clearer if you leave Gainesville with a win.
2: I think Utah and BYU are two of the most interesting playoff contenders in the country this year. Of all the years to not be playing, oh my God, if Utah and BYU played this year, it'd be gigantic. But I I understand. I respect trying to make the 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 national big time game because Utah, Florida will be a big time game to open that season. And then it's USC at Utah, October fifteenth, seventh game of the year for the Utes. That feels like by that point in the season, mid October, we'll have a handle on what USC is and isn't. Right. If they are something, and my partner on this podcast, Shahan J. Haraja, we did early playoff picks. He has USC in the playoff. I thought that was a little ambitious, but we know what the deal is with them. That could be if if Florida Utah is the biggest opener in Utah history, man, if USC and Utah are like both undefeated in mid-October, oh. this is gonna be
0: one of the biggest games in, in Utah history, right? Yeah. I mean that feels like a college game day type of thing. If, yep, if if Utah and USC are undefeated. I will say like the more I think about it you see how spring kind of shook out not just at Utah but all over the Pac12 I think people in this region are maybe underrating what UCLA could be mm. and I and I say that because before Utah gets to play USC Utah has to go to Pasadena to play UCLA which I think is going to be I think UCLA is going to be pretty good but okay. you know the point here is yes if you know in a perfect world USC and Utah are both undefeated on October 15th. Um, Utah has, I think it's 19 of 20 at Rice-Eccles Stadium. The one loss in there was the weirdo 2020 COVID opener when USC had already played, I think, twice. And Utah was opening and their offensive line was decimated. And and that was never a game. So, you know, you're seeing all the talk, right? The way too early polls, who's going to win the Pac-12. And I, I don't fault anybody for thinking that USC can win the Pac-12 because they can. But the road to the Pac-12 championship game still has to go through Rice-Eccles. And Utah, quite simply, they have not lost at Rice-Eccles with the exception of that COVID opener in a very long time. And this, top
2: to bottom, offense, defense, coaching, does this feel like a team that,
0: that could be a playoff team to you? Like, Do you feel like the pieces are in place? I'm a little more bearish than other people. They are capable. Okay, you bring back Rising. You bring back Tavion Thomas. You have two all-pack 12 tight ends in Brand Keefe and uh, Dalton Kincaid. Um, the offensive line, you've got eh, probably 60% of your starters returning. There's going to be some shuffling, but there's veteran. You know, a lot of veterans there. We talked about the secondary. Yes, they are capable, but I don't know. Look, let me throw this at you. I mean, historically, since the Pac-12 went to two divisions in 2011, nobody has gone nine and zero in the Pac-12 South. Utah needs to probably run the table again. Could they lose to Florida, finish 12 and one, Pac-12 championship game win, and still get there? Yes, but I am working under the assumption that at some point there is going to be a midseason hiccup because that's the way the Pac-12 works. Is this Utah team capable of? running the table in the Pac-12 at least? Yes, because their offense is high-octane. They were rolling right along last season. Once Rising came in, they go up to Corvallis to face Oregon State. They had a blocked punt, return for a touchdown, and they had two drives die inside the five when they were like, going right in. They are capable. Yes, there is likely to be a-, a hiccup at some point. Couldn't tell you when, but that's just the way the Pac-12 generally works.
2: And it's just hard, we all know, with the way the playoff has gone lately, the Pac-12 is just not going to get the benefit of the doubt Never in a tie. If there's a bunch of one-loss teams and you're trying to figure them out, the the committee's gotten used to leaving out the Pac-12, which which isn't fair to a team like Utah that I do think top to bottom has what they need and has a Hall of Fame coach, but that's just the reality. You have less margin for error. But they could show something. Listen, it's going to be Billy Napier's first game when they go to Florida you know, Anthony Richardson is a really interesting quarterback, but he's not necessarily a finished product that Utah can go win that game. And maybe they'll gain um, some respect, which they should already have. They should already have it, but yes. that's, you want to get on the radar in the right way. You guys need to follow Utah football this season. If you're going to do it, you want to do it with Josh Newman at sltrib.com. It's the Salt Lake Tribune. It is the place to follow Kyle Whittingham, and the Utah Utes. Josh, thanks so much for taking time to join us on the College Football Survivor Show. Thanks, Doug. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Joined now on the College Football Survivor Show by old friend James Crepia, covers Oregon football for OregonLive.com and the Oregonian. James, before we get into what happened at Oregon's spring game on Saturday, busy times, right? You got a lot of stuff going on there with Oregon football. Is that right?
4: <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, it's It's been uh, quite the busy last uh, couple of weeks and, and will continue to be for the next, uh, from my understanding, roughly two weeks uh, at least. Uh, lots going on in all of Oregon sports for one. And obviously the end of, uh, as you alluded to the spring game, uh, but yes, some uh, divided attention uh, the last week and a half for me, where uh, there's a rather prominent court case going on involving a uh, former Oregon football player. This is a civil trial to be clear for those who aren't following. Uh, it dates back uh, five years, literally uh, to a rather uh, unfortunate event. Five years ago, uh, at the start of winter workouts uh, at that time, uh, going back to the Willie Taggart era, era one year, uh, that it was. And uh, for those who hadn't been following it or, or keeping attuned to it, uh, for non-Oregon fans and for those around the country, it, the long story short is uh, they started strength and conditioning workouts. Uh, it was very intense. Uh, the University of Oregon has basically owned that, uh, literally said it in court. Their lawyer has said it. Uh, we own that the uh, workouts were excessive, that they were over the top. And it led to the hospitalization of three players with rhabdomyolysis. And one of those players filed suit. Uh, Well, two did, one settled. uh, And the one uh, remaining case is now in court uh, and here in Lane County, Oregon, downtown Eugene, uh, just a a mere mile or so away from Ottson Stadium. And it's been playing out in court with Willie Taggart and the former strength and conditioning coach of Day. And so it's against them uh, in the University of Oregon and the NCAA. And uh, it's been quite the... uh, (laughs) Quite the courtroom uh, fiasco uh, so far the first, the last couple of weeks we have Marcus Mariota testify remotely on Friday. Uh, a former Florida Atlantic player uh, testified uh, in a um, offer of proof testimony uh, presently inadmissible, but that could change. Uh, by the time you listen to this podcast, that could change mm. quite frankly. Mm. So there's a lot of stuff going on. It is a uh, incredibly compelling case, uh, but yes, in terms of, uh, where I've been running and how my attention has been uh, divided in many directions between uh, the end of spring football, uh, baseball and softball seasons going recruiting and this, uh, this court situation. Yes. uh, Quite a bit going on to say the least.
2: You know, this is real stuff. We've, we've seen this at too many programs where especially at times when a new coach comes in and is trying to establish something and overdoes it and the rights and the health and welfare of players is really, really important. This is not the only school where we have seen players hospitalized after workouts that were no. too intense. And again, we're not, the, the school is admitting, yes, they were too intense. So this is, whatever happens in this court case, it's a reminder to coaches and to strength and conditioning coaches, like, yes, I get it. You're trying to be tough and you're trying to establish a culture, or whatever, but like, there's a line, man, there's a line. And yeah, all they we need to remind coaches mm-hmm. and trainers need to be reminded of that line. And I would imagine a, a case like this is the very least doing that.
4: Yeah, and that's and that's really what this is about. Um, to, to be clear for folks too, um, especially for those who have not been following it you know, for the better. Like I say, this this is an incident from five years ago. You know, this is multiple yeah. head coaches ago, multiple strength and conditioning coaches ago. There's damn near nobody in the building who has any connection to this other than a couple of the athletic trainers who are still on staff and things like that. And certain support staff people in the greater operation. But otherwise, this has nothing to do with the current staff. I actually feel for them. They have nothing to do with this. And it's not like um, the, the scheduling of this trial was set up to correlate to anything going on in the spring here. Now, this is like I said, this is an incident from five years ago. The initial filing was 39 months ago. But between the pandemic and other things, and, you know, it's literally a big-time court case, things drag on. It just so happened to occur now. But this is not exactly the kind of headlines. Um, that a new coaching staff wants going on in the midst of uh, what they've got happening concurrently, but it has nothing to do with them whatsoever. Yeah. Um, but no, to your point, the reason why, quite honestly, the reason why this is court is it has nothing to do. Um, if this was strictly against the university. I think this probably would have been settled already. This has to do, to your point, though, is that the reason why the NCAA is involved is this punitive damages here that they're seeking, and uh, and it has to do with some other workouts that weren't part of the RABDO situation. And that's where the idea of, and then they've shown, uh, the the side has shown that the NCAA has known and has been party to, um, either directly, indirectly, you know, Dr. Hainline at the NCAA, uh, et cetera, over the last decade at various different panels, committees, task forces, you name it, slap whatever name you want on whatever group it is, um, that ultimately they were involved in discussion with We all know in covering college football, the the five-day, now seven-day acclimatization period and practices. You know, the start of spring, the start of now fall camp, you know, two days in T-shirts, two days in shells. Then you get to full contact, and now it's been expanded to seven days where it's a little bit different with other stuff. But anyway, that's the basics. And that's been around for, gosh, it's like 15-plus years now. It doesn't apply to strength and conditioning. And yet they've known since 2012 and have had numerous like I say, committees about this and have done nothing. That's yeah. why, that's why this case is in court because this incident with Brad though, for these three players. And like you said, it's not the first time and they've referenced multiple times in the case, the Iowa incident too, where there were 13 players hospitalized with Brad because of strength and conditioning workouts and uh, yeah, no, not all the circumstances the same. And you know, Brad though is a, a. a, I wouldn't say it's, it's rare in that it doesn't happen all the time. Certainly. Uh, but when it happens, it usually happens related to overexertion. It's an overexertion injury. Yeah. And when you put that into college sports and you do it at the start of workouts, following a break of some kind, usually it's the January start of things, uh, that can have real consequences. And it's not – we we see it in the football realm, but obviously it's not the only sport where that occurs. And the whole – one of the points of getting across in this case, your point, Doug, is, yeah, they would like to see – Change. I guarantee no matter what the outcome of this case in the next couple of weeks, that by June 23, that the NCAA will have enacted a change in the implementation of a acclimatization period for strength and conditioning workouts. It, it, it takes time to, you know, go through the legislative process. That's something you just snap a finger and somebody right. votes on something. But I will, no matter what happens here in Eugene, Oregon, uh, with the very, very well-paid lawyers, uh, representing the NCAA. Uh, From various parts of the country, including one who is an instructor at Harvard, Uh, they will—I will virtually guarantee you—implement a policy by June of 2023 that implements the changes that this this case is about.
2: Important stuff. Keep your eye on that. Uh, This is how stuff gets changed at the NCAA. The NCAA doesn't do anything proactively. The NCAA changes all
4: all reactionary, all in a crisis, all way something, all when hundred millions of dollars are on the line. They never look. There's no foresight. When people yeah, have suffered.
2: Not. Yeah. Yes. When athletes yes. have been damaged. Because, the, because have, as I'm, they've yeah. laid out.
4: As they've laid out. But we have to remind fans because we follow this stuff. You, you, and I, you know, we've, we've done been here, done that. We've been in this business and, and followed this stuff and chronicle it every day. But because there isn't a union and I'm not saying there should be, I'm saying because there isn't
2: nothing's bargained there's no agreements there's, on no, there's no
4: collective bargaining there is no union representative and they've laid out numerous times in this case because former oregon players who are now in the nfl have laid out for the jury and the potential layperson who doesn't follow these things like us that no there isn't a player representative not not in that way in the nfl pa they monitor nfl practices and if a team practices, you know, workouts, workouts, you gotta be kidding. A strength coach in the NFL is going to force a multimillionaire player to work out over the top. Are you crazy? Right. But an 18 to 23 year old. Yeah, they very well could. They don't have the same kind of leverage. They're not the same kind of protections. And when you don't bargain and you don't have a union, and I'm again, I'm not suggesting that you should, but if you don't, and you don't have an advocate for the players protecting these things, well, then when something happens, you don't, Merely get to say, oh, well, hey, you know, they right now, now all the paternalistic things about, well, they're the student athlete, we're here to protect, we're here to whatever. Oh, well, now there's money on the line. Oh, hey, well, they had all their personal responsibility in the world to <laughs> go well,
2: And all those players in the moment, every player is afraid if I speak up, I'm going to be a, viewed as a malcontent, I'm going to get kicked off the team.
4: Exactly. So you go along with a new it, coach, and, and even you if are. it's not a new coach, but in this case, right. it's a new coach, and there was a meeting two days earlier, and things were said, and it, exactly, yeah.
2: All right, let's get down to the football of this. This stuff is important, which is why we took a few minutes to talk about it. Follow it. James is covering it at OregonLive.com. You can read his coverage there. We would encourage you to follow that because it is is going to have an effect on the NCAA. Let's get down to the football on Saturday. Two really interesting quarterbacks for Oregon, Mm -hmm. James. And one more guy who I wasn't even really aware of. You have Bo Nix, transfer, former three-year starter at Auburn. You have Ty Thompson second year player, was a top 50 national recruit, the seventh best quarterback in the class of um, 2021. Guys like Quinn Ewers and Caleb Williams were the guys ahead of him. Is there really a quarterback competition that you saw this spring, James, or is this Bo Nix's job? That's why he transferred for Auburn and Ty Thompson's going to get another year learning.
4: No, it it looked every bit like a competition in the times in the spring that we're out there. And again, like most places, not like we were there for 100 percent of practice every day, um, but for the portions of practice that we saw and for the portions of 11 and 11 drills and, and periods of practice that we saw. It very much appeared to be and everything that we would heard and everything that we'd seen throughout the spring was that it wasn't just lip service. There are times where you're told, hey, there's a competition, but then you see absolutely no evidence. this <laughs> is actually a competition. You only see one guy taking all the first team reps um you never see them not take first team reps basically last year we were told oh well this is competition yeah anthony brown came back tyler shuck uh, from the year before who had been the starter transferred to texas tech but we had heard last year oh well there's this is competition this is competition but all we ever saw was anthony brown jr take all the first team reps and even if anybody else took any first team he never took second team he never worked with anybody else so that was a competition in name only it never seemed like it was in earnest illegitimate competition and i'm not saying it should again not suggesting it should have been I'm just giving context to mm-hmm. because here you had a true freshman and a couple of second year freshmen last year competing for something and a 60 year senior would come in yeah it seemed kind of obvious here obviously as you allude to nicks comes in with a lot of experience at the time that he came in as a transfer there were a lot of people who immediately reacted saying "Up, oh, they're just going out and getting a guy who would run that offense and Kenny Dillingham was his coordinator uh, for one year at Auburn. So therefore they're just giving them the keys. It's, it's not even going to be a competition. They just automatically, just, and then for those who don't like that idea, they, you know, express themselves accordingly. Everything we saw throughout spring indicated that this was going to be a competition, that it was a competition. These were splitting reps, et cetera. On this, during the spring game on Saturday, did bonix outperform both Ty Thompson and Jay Butterfield? Yes. Yes, he did outperformed them was it by a matter and amplitude to the point where and again i'm not going to use a spring game as a one-game sample of anything but was it to the point where you go well it's over i don't know about that okay Uh, he did outperform them you know he was the one who had the biggest throws he's the one who had the three touchdowns now they all threw interceptions uh thompson threw two of them and and said after the game he felt he played poorly so you know, nobody's pulling any punches here, but do I think right now, if you had to ask me, you know, on April 25th, who do I think the starter for the Oregon Ducks going to be against Georgia in the season opener? I do think it'll be Bo Nix. Having said that, do I think it's going to be announced or decided today, a week from now or a month from now? No, I don't. I think this is going to go into fall camp and I think it should. I think. Do it you should. think... I don't think it's defi- I don't think it's definitively done one way or the other.
2: Bo Nix, I mean, at this point, you know what Bo Nix is about, right? Bo Nix is a good college quarterback. Mm-hmm. Is Ty Thompson a future star? Like, it's early to tell, but it, it does, would you guess that his upside when he becomes what he can become is higher than Bo Nix?
4: It is really hard to say, to be honest with you. It is. And now there will be Auburn fans who hear that, and then they'll, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. The prodigal son and, and the legacy. Uh, who they they were dying to have and want, you know. The minute that he leaves, or the minute that you know there was the the good bow, bad bow, you know mm-hmm. periods there of the past three years. Um, but boy, he goes somewhere else, and now they've got nothing but negative things to say. It's amazing. It's amazing how that works. At his highs, obviously, he had some tremendous success at Auburn. You know, they hadn't won at LSU in twenty years, uh, and, and makes and he plays a lot of great backyard football. He also had one of the worst offensive lines in the SEC every year that he was there. He will have the best offensive line he's ever played behind here by a country mile. It won't even be close. Not, not even in the same lexicon. And it would be, quite honestly, rather embarrassing to suggest that any of these offensive linemen wouldn't be any of individually the best offensive linemen uh, who he ever played behind, let alone the entire line. So that part will help him. Having said that, you develop tendencies after a while. Some of them are going to be hard to shake, (laughs) even with a really good offensive line. If he plays that kind of style and extends the play and scrambles and stuff, well, it's kind of part of who he is. Do I think that Thompson's upside could could be higher? I think that almost puts in the position of overemphasizing some of the, quote-unquote, bad bow aspects Mm -hmm. of the past years that... There's certainly the decision-making or, or you know ball placement at times for interceptions or in costly spots where you go, oh, goodness. Is that always on him, I would say. And, again, I've watched and kept attuned tune too, because I used to cover Auburn, and I, used, you know, and I frankly, I covered Bonix's recruitment way back in the day, um, to where I would see some things, certainly. But I did not watch every single game every single Saturday, to would be clear. But in an, a similar system, different skill position players, different conference, uh, different you know, caliber of defenses, frankly, in this conference. I think his upside now, not only because he's entering his fourth season of college football, but I I think his upside could be a little bit higher too. So do I think Thompson could be eventually? Yeah. I I think now in college football, I think we've, we've now jumped to, it's amazing what the Manziel effect was over the past 10 years. Prior to Manzel, the idea of a freshman absolutely having to start, otherwise, oh, why was he even a five star? Was hey, there is something called development and learning? A yeah, playbook. everybody sat, everybody sat, everybody yeah. sat, everybody set. and you know, and if you didn't play immediately, it wasn't the end of the world. And hell, you, you were supposed to wait your turn for two, three, even four years. <laughs> you know, hey, don't worry about it. Now it's like if the four or five-star quarterback who came in as the highest in whatever the program's history was, doesn't start on day one. up oh, there's a bust. What do they do? They don't even know how to recruit the position. And it's a disaster. And you just go, all right, the, the, we probably swung a little too far to that. Well, yeah. that's not even hyperbolic. That is literally how it is. That's kind of a little bit over the top. So I don't think if Bodix has the job and obviously the, theoretically he has two years of eligibility, but to your point, I think this is probably a one-year exercise if he is the starter. Then a year from now, presumptively, then, yeah, a third-year sophomore, Ty Thompson, is in an awfully advantageous position. Yes.
2: Okay. All right. Let's look at where Oregon. We know it's new under Dan Lanning, first-year coach, Georgia defensive coordinator a year ago. Losing Kayvon Thibodeau, who's going to be a top-10 pick in the NFL draft where is Oregon going to be not as good as a year ago from what you saw this spring? I know you wrote about DJ Johnson, right? Had a good mm-hmm. game flash some as an edge rusher in the spring game, but is that where you would say, Hey, maybe the pass rush won't be as good. Or is there another area where you think Oregon might take a step back?
4: If the pass rush isn't as good, frankly, they have only one direction to go though. And that's what losing came on to them. They had the fewest sacks since the stat became official in program history
2: with him. With him. I didn't even realize, I didn't realize it was that much of a problem. So it was bad. Okay. It they was had fun, but the rest of it was not great. Okay. Right.
4: And I would put a lot of that on strategic aspects combined with some player injury, to be clear. But I would put that on some strategic and play calling um, of last season. But they have only one direction to go there, even when losing Kayvon Thibodeau, because they had that few. They were not disruptive. Okay. They didn't cause nearly enough chaos in the backfield. Uh, and disruption in the backfield as the okay. defense. So you mentioned D.J. Johnson. He's a guy who, yes, had a huge spring game, to be clear. I mean, absolutely monumental. <laughs> four, four sacks. I and mean, that's, you know, tag-off sacks nevertheless, but, like, that's, that's incredible. And he wasn't doing it against, you know, the third-team walk-on tackle, by the way. He was doing it against legitimate guys on the offensive line. Yes, it's a spring game. Let's not overreact. But if he even shows half of a quarter of what is of what that ability was um they really need that now Braden swinson is probably going to be the lead guy from an address standpoint but if dj johnson can be there along with him they can certainly add a lot there i think the areas where they're going to um probably take a step back defensively or could take a step back defensively now they lost for mckinley the third as well and he was their other all-american at safety and they certainly have some talent back there but he led the country in interceptions Okay, and I don't know if (laughs) – I don't know if they're going to have another player who's going to have six interceptions next season. Let's put it that way. Um, I don't know if the team total will be as high. I don't think if it isn't as high that that means that they're going to be a worse defense. I think they're going to be a better defense overall statistically in certain categories. But if I had to pick one in particular, yeah, it's going to be interceptions because you lose lose the nation's leader and there isn't a clear-cut, obvious guy who's going to be that ball hawk for them right now. They have some good players. Don't be wrong there's always, you know, replacement of, of talent in college football, but McKinley was, he was, what he was, he was, he was the nascent leader in interceptions and he was a four board finals.
2: Okay. So, so then is the pass rush, the area you think they can improve the most or where could they, where will they be the much better from, from last year?
4: I think that pass rush collectively, it's going to be making it up in the aggregate. Yeah. It's not the individual. There is no individual who, uh, right now who you'd say is going to be at or better than. Thibodeau. Swinson could be, could be that kind of a talent. Um, he very well could be a first round talent eventually. He could. I don't hold him back from that in the least. But he is not the former number one five star, you know, all all world player that Thibodeau was entering college let alone. But I think there's aspects of the linebacker room, and they had talent last year and Noah Sewell, you know, racked up tackles and he was a tackling yep. machine. But their problem was is that Three other linebackers, you know, three of their other top four got hurt and got hurt by week one. Yep. So their depth at linebacker got tested immediately, got tested in the Ohio State game. Mm-hmm. In the Ohio State game, you had Keith Brown and Jeff Boss out there. Jeff Boss was supposed to play nickel, he was playing on week side line linebacker in that game. And Keith Brown was supposed to be a rotational freshman. And he was out there basically playing rather significantly and then had a, a pulled his hamstring in the game against Ohio State last season. But those were guys who, like I say, one changed positions and is staying at linebacker in the long run And Bossa, who had a really nice year last year as a true freshman. And like I say, Brown was supposed to be basically in a rotation and ended up being on the two deep for as much of the season as he could be. He was dealing with a little bit of the hamstring thing. Well, when you have a Justin Flo, the former number one linebacker in the country and a five-star who back-to-back years has suffered an injury in the season opener, that's been brutal. And he was limited in the spring, didn't take part in the spring game. Well, if they get him back full bore, that alone makes that linebacker core a – just it, it's just different. It, you yeah. know, that, that's a difference maker. So I, could, I think they could see significant upgrades and that. And because of that, that helps the pass rush from both him and Sewell potentially being involved there because you saw what Georgia's linebackers do in, in that defense and that scheme. So it won't just be the edge guys yet, what they do with the linebacker position in particular. I think that, that could be a big area. And, and with that, the run defense impact uh, as well.
2: Okay. Who's going to be the best skill guy? for Oregon offensive skill offensive skill guy that's a good question um
4: I think because of his versatility that seven McGee puts himself in that conversation you saw him a good bit in the spring game um he was moved over to receiver from running back he kind of fills I and I don't even want to make the analogy because it'd be totally unfair to him I I don't don't want to go there Um, I was I, I don't want to put a name to it because then it's just going to get out of control um He's, he's a Swiss Army knife kind of a guy. Okay. Uh, he has the ability that they didn't put him in the backfield that much uh, on the spring game and in the spring, but he certainly could. Uh, I think because of his speed and versatility, he could be that guy. And there are two outside receivers, Troy Franklin and Dante Thornton. If I had to pick between the two, I'd say Thornton more likely of the two, only because at the moment he's filled out his frame more. They came in, and these are two top 20 uh, receivers that they had signed uh, in the class of 21, they did not have uber-productive years as freshmen. They closed the season in prominent roles because of injuries and, and had big games in the Alma Bowl. But Franklin came in at 6'2", 169. Now, he's gained a good amount of weight since then, but that's pretty, you know, pretty wiry. And the moniker that got slapped on these guys, these two, plus Isaiah Ravar, their other uh, receiver who came in last year, was they, they called themselves, and the fans called them, the Skinnies. Well, now they've changed that. Nickname. Wow.
2: What yeah. a what a unique nickname. Oh, right. They're all skinny. Let's call them the skinnies. Right. But
4: at the same time, you, <laughs> you say on one hand, while it sticks, and it's a little bit fun in the short term, you go, right. But what All-American receiver would you say is the skinny guy?
2: Yeah. Now, that's true.
4: I So the point skinnies, is, is they, not, they need. I'm not a receiver. Yes, likewise. Yes, I'm working on that. Um, but, <laughs> but, yeah, you ultimately, you, you want your receiver to be, you know, you want to be, you need dudes, you know, yeah. you need, you need some real big guys and you, you know, skinny receivers are going to get knocked off the ball by either bigger corners or safeties or not looking to knock their block off. So they've filled out a bit more. Uh, And like I say, Thornton is the one who's probably has a bit more by way of stature, a bit more, not wildly. So, so those two, I'd say really, that's, that's the three of them. Um, And Byron Carbell jr. Running back, who had productive year last year. will probably be the lead back. Didn't take part in the spring game for uh, precautionary reasons, but I'd say that I'm giving you four names, but I think it's just, that's part of the unknown right now. The replacing, you know, this is a backfield that had thousand yard rushes for year after year after year. Those guys are gone. Um, This is a wide receiver core that, wasn't exactly the most super talented the last four, five, six years anyway. And their leaders and seniors, they're gone. So it is the unknown. You have a new starting running back, a whole new starting wide receiving core, for all intents and purposes. That is probably the biggest question, frankly, facing this offense. Everybody wants to talk about quarterback. I've said all along, even before spring started, I said, It's a, it's an X or Y conversation. Yes. There's also Jay Butterfield. I'm not looking past him, but ultimately this is an X or Y conversation. That's not the biggest unknown to me about this offense. It's not the scheme because I covered Gus Malzahn in the offense. I don't know what the scheme is to me. I think the biggest unknown is to your point, the skill positions because there's just so much changing going
2: on. All right. So this is a podcast where we are going around the country have done so with playoff contenders. And so Oregon, this losing cave on Thibodeau, Oregon saw its head coach leave. They hired Dan Lanning from the national championship, Georgia Bulldogs, but he's never been a head coach like this before. Why are we talking about Oregon, Oregon? We got to the third playoff rankings last year, James, Oregon's nine and one. They were third. Mm-hmm. The only two teams ahead of them are Georgia and Alabama. you got to put some respect on the Oregon program. They mm-hmm. are undergoing a change. Dan Lanning seems like a good hire. there's going to be a quarterback answer. It's one of those things. The quarterback will be pretty good. Probably it seems like the quarterback probably will be better than Anthony Brown was a year ago. And they got to nine and one with Anthony Brown in the end. This is the final question, James. Will Oregon be a playoff contender this year in the mix, not guaranteed one of the four spots, but were they last year? Absolutely. When you're nine and one and you're third in the playoff rankings, you are a contender, man. Can Oregon be that kind of team in 2022?
4: Absolutely. 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 Right now in this league, in this conference, they are. I know I say this as of today, April 25th, and I realize we're about to have one wild week of the portal ahead of us. (laughs) So without knowing if, you know, 17 All-Americans are going to the portal between now and May 1st and they all end up at USC or something. Um, And I'd be a little, you know, a little tongue in cheek in that. But based on what we know today, Oregon certainly has the most talent on paper. They've had the best recruiting classes on paper the last several years. That is what Dan Lannan and his staff inherit. And they have added two to be clear um, in this past year. So from a talent standpoint, there is a significant gap between Oregon and anyone in the North division. Certainly. I mean, most definitely. They've, they basically ran Washington out of town um, by way of the competition in the North division and nobody else in the North who is stacking up the talent in the way that they did. Now, Stanford has some nice players, certainly. And, Washington state had a nice season by the end of it. Oregon state's on the ascent, but nobody who's assembled these, you know, the number of blue chips and stuff that you need to, to contend on a perennial basis. And in the South, everybody points to, so yeah, Utah won the league and obviously beat Oregon twice in a couple of weeks span at the end of the season. But they graduated some of their best players, turn a lot on offense, but lose, you know, basically their best players on defense and USC. Everybody's, everybody's in a rush from, from the megalith in, in Bristol on down everyone's in a rush to put the car before the horse there and uh, just declare that they're going to be winning the league for the next, you know, I don't know however long Lincoln Riley feels like, uh, you know, having access to the private jet they're, They just cannot wait to declare that USC is back except of course, that they inherited a roster that needed a massive overhaul. It is going through that overhaul and they are very upfront about the fact that they could need to continue that overhaul. Well, I don't think they're there yet. Now they may even win the South, but I still don't think they're there yet. As of April twenty fifth, if they add, like I say, you know, let me know who they add via the portal here the next couple of weeks, and maybe they actually put themselves a little bit closer to that conversation. Having said that, yeah, it's a long way of saying that's the lay of the land here in the Pac twelve. In that case, who's going to beat them? And by the way, these are teams who don't play in the regular season, even if SC really is that good. So if they do play, it'll be in a Pac twelve title game. Well, if you're making it to a conference championship game, and yes, there is that game against Georgia in the season opener, even with a loss. And they have BYU, yeah. BYU on the schedule two weeks later, by the way, at home. Hey, at that point, who's beating them? Who's beating them in the league? And I'm not saying they're gonna run the table you know they'll be 11 and one, whatever. No, I'm saying are they a playoff contender? Are they legitimately in that conversation like we're talking about? Could they be nine and one after 10 games in that conversation in November during the playoff rankings? Yes, absolutely. Even with a loss to Georgia in the season opener. Yep. Yes, absolutely. If they win that game. If they win if they win that game, yes, yeah, so if Georgia lost, you know, a boatload of talent, obviously, in the NFL draft, they'll probably have like twelve players selected later this weekend. Yeah. Like, are you kidding? Yeah. So yes, when you when you have yourself in a game like that in week one and with the conference that they're in right now, they're absolutely a potential playoff contender.
2: He's James Crepia from Oregon Live. Read his coverage of the ducks there. Thanks to James. Thanks to all my other guests on this part one of this weekend wrap around of the major playoff contenders and how their springs went. There will be a part two because so many teams have their springs games on Saturday for now. Thanks to James. I'm Doug Maurice. And that was the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.